Welcome to Halt the Harm podcast. I'm Ryan Clover. And on this episode, I'm talking with Lisa Graves Marcusi from the Environmental Integrity Project. This was an awesome conversation. And if you're concerned about fracking infrastructure or actually any kind of industrial development, you're going to find this episode really valuable. For the last two decades, Lisa's been helping people stand up to industry. She helps us understand what questions to ask, where to intervene, and she even breaks down the tactics that are used by the industry that discourage us from getting involved. I'm really honored to have her on the show, and I really want to invite you to listen to this whole episode and just soak it up. So, Lisa, welcome to Health Harm Podcast, and could you just start by telling us more about your work with the Environmental Integrity Project? Yeah, so I am the coordinator of community outreach in Pennsylvania. So what what I do is I go into the communities, I listen to their concerns, I help educate them on how to do factual research on the company's uh, application, exactly what they're asking, so we can get familiar with what are the, do they have an operation, what does that entail, and do they want a new or expanded operation, what does that entail? And then using that research information, that factual information, going back into the community to educate others, um, to educate lawmakers, local lawmakers, and to also participate in public venues, either create a public venue, asking for a public meeting, asking for a public hearing. So it's a combination of um, organizing and listening, research and fact-finding, and then finding or creating venues in which the public voices can be heard. How did you get started with this kind of work? So, you know, where did it all come from? What what originally motivated you to get involved? Sure. So I um, graduated from Duquesne University in, in Pittsburgh, and I have a degree in journalism. I spent 12 years in radio and um, then left the business world to get married, raise a family. And then when my oldest son was just small, a toddler, uh, found out that they wanted to put uh, coal ash or fly ash, which is the byproduct after burning coal at an electric um, or at a coal-fired power plant. They wanted to put that in the property that adjoins my parents' backyard and that um, also was coming to my community. So my dad and I, when my dad was still living, my dad and I started doing research. And the first two questions we said was, what is fly ash and is it safe? Um, there really, I didn't even have a computer at the time. There, what, the internet wasn't as, um, as detailed or as easily accessible as it is now. Uh, we struggled along by ourselves for a number of years. And then over the course of our struggles, I met some really helpful people along the way. And one of them uh, was Eric Schaefer, who is the, used to be the head of enforcement for the US EPA. He left in, I think it was in 2002 um, to start, he left in, in, in um, he resigned his position and started EIP. And as he was exiting EPA, he was looking for particular communities that might be impacted by coal-fired power plants. That's how I met him told him our situation. And I'll never forget the first meeting my dad and I had with him was, he said, I'm going to teach you how to find the facts and I'm going to teach you how to get a voice. So I learned from him. I was a volunteer for a number of years with EIP. I then was a um, contractor on special projects for EIP for a couple years. 
And then in 2009, I was brought on full time in the role I'm in now. So exactly what Eric said to my dad and I in 2002, I'm going to teach you how to find the facts and I'm going to teach you how to use them to get a voice is exactly what um, we do is in my role. um, A lot of the folks at EIP are attorneys. I am not. Um, but I do go into the communities. As I said, I listen, I teach them how to do their homework, teach them how to ask for a seat at the table. And then we build bridges to that community. I usually stay in those communities a number of years. I help them. Um, I listen to them. We build things, um, foundation and then upward. We, we understand that sometimes this is a long slog. It's not anything that is cured or changed overnight but it's a building process. And then those community members have been very gracious. They've gone with me to other communities and they've said, here's what we learned. Maybe we can help you. So we're basically teaching and building a network as we go. Uh So you really got motivated by your own experience. You were, yes, you, you never really saw yourself as an environmentalist and I guess, yeah. And I think that's right. And I think that's part of why um, why I connect with people and how I connect with people, because I've been that person who is frantic that something is happening that could be harmful to my family. I, I was that person who was calling and emailing and sending out faxes at the time. It was faxes um, trying to get someone to help and to pay attention. Um, because I've been in those shoes, I have a, a heart for when people are going through that. I also have, you know, I've stubbed my toes. I've bumped my head along the way. And so if I'm able to say, you know, here's a, a better way to do that or a new way to think about that or have you tried this, I think that it's something that I can honestly sit across from them at their kitchen table and say, you know, I do get it. I've been there. And let's see how we can work together to, to maybe make a difference. Um, so, right, I never went to school for this. I never, if somebody had said to me, what would you be doing, you know, X number of years from when you graduate, I would never have thought this. But I still use my skills. I'm, you know, as a journalist, I still know how to do research. As a, you know, um, person from, you know, a radio background, I do public speaking and I'm very comfortable and very happy to do that. I'm, you know, kind of morphing all of what I learned along the way, including the lioness protecting everyone's cubs. Um, and it has become, you know, a job that I really love. Um, it's hard. It's, it's long hours. And it's sometimes we don't get many clear victories, but I've met some of the greatest people along the way that I may not have ever met. And I feel as though together we have accomplished a number of really important things if for no other reason than that we've started to level the playing field by saying, wait just a minute, it's not just industry and the state and the federal regulatory agencies, but citizens who are impacted and local government agencies are stakeholders too. Uh-huh. So you've had experience for, you've been doing this for 20 years now, and mm-hmm. you've had experience in many different communities throughout your region and so I imagine that you've started to see some of the same faces, maybe some of the same uh, tactics or, or you know, strategies on behalf mm-hmm. of industry to sort of get their foot in the door. If, if you could like break it down into some common patterns, what are they? What are some of the ways that industry 
uh, sort of uses their might or positions themselves in a particular way to intimidate us into just going with the program. Right. I think you hit on sort of the overarching approach that I've witnessed. It's been my experience that industry likes to control the message. So industry likes to come in and basically say it's a foregone conclusion that this will happen and we're in charge. So that's really it's the demeanor in which they come into the community. Um, I think that sometimes right off the bat puts the citizens in a position of, oh, well, what can I do? How could I affect change? Um, so that's one thing. I think it's sort of an overarching. I've actually been at a public hearing with a pretty large company. This was recently that when we were trying to ask questions and present things on the record, and we really were providing factual pushback and reasons why the board should deny because it was incomplete, um, their, one of their team members actually stood up and said, oh, just get over it. We're going to be here. Was there, that's how they, they so they have this, this um, you know, almost um, like they're in a position of authority over the, the stakeholders of the citizens and the local government. So that's the first thing I've noticed is their demeanor and their presentation and the fact that they want to control the message. Um, another thing that I've witnessed is they will try, as I said, when um, the public is trying to participate in the public hearing or be part of the decision-making process, they will speak in legalese. They'll try to object or make it like it's an actual courtroom. They'll try to intimidate when a citizen tries to you know, put something on the record. They'll object that it's not following a certain legal proceeding, and that's another way of intimidating. Um, they're also, I've noticed, is the what I just described to you is the company or workers will come in and they'll try to intimidate the speakers or take control of the meeting or change the discussion. Um, so they'll, you know, verbally try to push back and, and get people off their mark. Um, the other thing is that the, we just saw this recently um, a local community did not understand that once a, a legal proceeding, a public hearing began, that they were not allowed to have any outside conversations with the applicant or the company without inviting the other parties, including the citizens and others, to be there. Um, so we would go to the hearings and they would have these conversations about we had this meeting and basically you, the citizens, weren't in, included. So they always feel as though or not always, they sometimes um, want to give the impression that you're not, you as the public aren't welcome. This is something that's handled at a higher level than you. But if you have the facts, you can, you know, challenge that a bit. Um, and then sometimes, you know, I have not witnessed this, but I know folks in our general area, some have, is that when um, they spoke up, the company filed what they call a slap suit. I don't, remember what the acronym stands for, but I understand it's something that they companies sometimes use to intimidate people to make them not want to speak up in public. Slapsuit stands for Strategic Lawsuit Against Public yeah. Participation. Yeah. Yeah. And that's on the extreme side. I've only heard of one instance of that, which is this Mars area parent group in Middlesex Township. Um, 
so I can't really speak to that. But I think if you did your homework and found out, you would see that that's a real thing. And there are instances where that has happened in, you know, varying degrees and in various types of scenarios. Yes, so often the intimidation is just the way that the industry so elegantly frames the issue as inevitable. Mm -hmm. And it comes yeah. across as very intimidating. Like, how do you stand up to something that's <laughs> inevitable? Um, but right. then, you know, what you're showing people and what and what other people that are involved with the challenging the industry, are, you know, it's like the task is to show them how not inevitable it actually is. That's right. That's right. And and the best way that I found to do that is that there, you know, and I will tell I will tell you before I go into some of the particulars. We're actually working on what we're calling a citizen's toolkit, and it is geared, a lot of it is geared specific to Pennsylvania because that's where, we, where I am and that's where my community organizing um, um, resources have been. But it's something that I think people can investigate to see if these same types of opportunities uh, you know, are available in their states. They probably are. Um, so what, what I always tr try to get people to understand is Industry has certain documentation they have to provide to agencies, whether they be a local governing board, a state regulatory agency, county or federal. And those are the documents that all the industries are held to. So when they put in an application, for example, whether it's a well pad or a compressor station or a cryogenic plant, they're telling that governing body or that regulatory agency, here's what we intend to do. Here's what we'd like your permission to do. And if you have their documents as a citizen team, you have a better understanding for exactly what they're asking for. And there are ways that you can fact check certain things. And that's what we're teaching people, how to get the documents, how to fact check, see when things are incomplete, see where maybe the math isn't adding up, where the acreage is wrong. There are lots of things that can be fact-checked. When you have those documents in front of you and you're going, for example, to a public hearing or a public meeting, and you're saying on page 12 of their application, they say this, but on page 24, they say something differently. What is the truth about that? Which is the number? We, I did that in one of the communities. They had the size of the frack pit was about 500,000 gallons off. It was in, listed in the application in two different numbers in two different sections. And that then gave the local council the ability to, to say, we need clarification. Um, so when you have their documents, when you have teams of people who are trained to be fact checkers, which is pretty easy to do, um, that's when you can go into those meetings and you ask specific questions about that project and you can raise your inconsistencies or irregularities or you have a basis for your concerns that tie directly to the documentation they're held accountable to. Wow. So that's the first thing. That's the number one thing that I find personally eliminates a lot of the, in, you know, the company's um, presumptive nature that this is a done deal and you're not going to stop us. Well, if you have the information and you can raise very specific factual questions, it sometimes gives that overseer um, and that decision maker the opportunity to say, yeah, wait just a minute. That is a good question. So that's the number one thing is first is to be factual, do your homework, 
learn how to get those um, learn how to get those materials, have teams of people to read over them. And really, it's a matter sometimes of just reading and being aware of inconsistencies um, that can make a huge difference to start that really important conversation. So you're you're scrutinizing what the industry is proposing and you're teaching Correct. people how to scrutinize it um, everywhere you go. So that must really anger uh, people in the industry. What kind of response have you gotten from them? So it's interesting. Um, d- different companies respond different ways. Sometimes um, they're quiet and they you know regroup and come back the next meeting. Um, sometimes they're at a public hearing. There's one company, their attorney, um, no matter what we try to enter onto the record, they challenge, they treat it like we're in a courtroom, which is not the way that proceeding is supposed to be. And they try to use the intimidation tactic of speaking lawyerese and, you know, little legal lingo. Um, but in that case, we've gone to whatever in Pennsylvania, it's called the municipal planning code, the municipal planning code or MPC says this is the way a public hearing is to be held. And so we go back to the rule book and we say, again, going back to the root of facts, we say, no, wait just a minute. The MPC says this. We understand this is the way the hearings to be handled. We understand that we have a right to participate and not be expected to act like lawyers because we're not. Um, when you have the rule book by which everybody's playing, it also has a way of leveling the playing field. Because they always try to play, in my opinion, keep away, you know, well, you know, you don't really know, you're not an attorney, you wouldn't know. But if you know, and you do some homework to find out what are the rules for a local governing board? What are the rules for the state or federal regulatory agencies? What's the rule book they're using? Then you get an, an opportunity to level the playing field and say, no, wait, the rule says this. Why are we doing appearing? Why, why does this appear to be different than what the rule book says? So again, taking it right back to the foundation of the decision-making and what rules apply. That's another way. Um, that sometimes calms it down. Now, the most recent tactic that I've experienced was kind of an, a, I've not had this before, but it just happened last week. Um, there was a company that um, came to a meeting. I had been invited to present. I was the third in the series of presenters. First, it was the company then it was the state regulatory agency, and then I was invited as the third presenter to bring in some of what we're talking about. What are the rules? What do local boards have to do? What do they need to do as part of their due diligence? What are the ways that they get notified that these operations are pending in their community? How do they get a seat at the table? So basically, I was offering educational opportunities for boards who have never approved an, a massive industrial site like an oil and gas operation to understand a little bit more about what were their rights and their responsibilities. Um, so industry, right off the bat, the tactic it appeared to me was they started just shouting out, you know, just blistering questions. You know, why are you here? You shouldn't be here. You, you don't have a right to be here. You're not industry. You're not the state. Um, very belligerent, um, almost rapid fire questions. Now, if I had been a new um, person on a newly formed citizen team, that would likely have had an intimidation um, effect. They, they might have been rattled. 
they might have gotten off their mark and not been able to complete their their presentation, or they might have not known to push back. Um, I pushed back. I've been doing it for over 20 years, um, and I said, well, actually, the board said she was invited by a unanimous vote, so stop being rude. Um, they continued with the the prodding, and finally, I said to them, you know, gentlemen, my dad, I didn't, never raised my voice. I said, my dad had a saying, he who shouts is losing. And I remained quiet and I just looked right at them, had deadlocked eye contact with them. The room got very quiet. One of the company representatives raised his hand and he very slowly, almost timidly raised his hand and said, I do have a question, but I'm not shouting. And I said, you may proceed. But what happened was I had done my homework. I knew my facts. I felt confident in my facts. I was there as an objective educational um, moderator, basically, of that meeting, and I didn't allow them to take control. I didn't allow them to change the message. Um, that's something that comes with time. That's something that comes with, you know, over the, the long haul of experiencing these things. But those are the types of things that I want to teach people you can learn this too, and let's teach it to you rather quickly. But if you have the basis of facts and the rule book behind you, it makes your confidence level go up just a bit that you feel, wait a second, I'm not second guessing myself just because these guys are firing rapid fire questions at me. Um, the meeting, you know, there were some rough spots, but on the whole, uh, there was, I didn't know there was a reporter in the room and actually the, the newspaper article was very objective and it was, you know, very fair. And um, at the end of the day, the citizens thanked me and some of the board members thanked me for giving them a new um, way to look at this, that they are not, unfortunately, what's happening in a lot of these communities in Pennsylvania that I work in, they view these oil and gas operation, operations as intimidating they say, well, the state and the fed, federal agencies have jurisdiction, not us. We don't have a say. So they, unfortunately, are not doing enough on their end to ensure public health, safety, and welfare. So that's, yeah. I'm sort of inserting that part of the dialogue into the equation. And it's, you know, over the last couple of years, I've noticed it's been sorely missing. So we're trying to provide educational um, materials that take it right back to the level of what are the facts, what are they going to be held to, and what are the rules for every decision maker, and are we asking them to follow the rules, and are they actually doing what's required? So the verdict's still out. Um, it's still a work in progress, but just based on the reaction that I had from industry last week, it did quiet that particular group down, and I proceeded and, and was able to make that presentation in a way that I think made a slight difference. We still mm -hmm. have a lot of work to do, but we at least open important dialogue with Yeah, that. yeah. Lisa, can you share an example of a time when, when getting involved in the permitting process really turned the tables in favor of the public? You know. There's one other example that I can share with you. This happened a year ago, May of last year. Um, the citizens and I had done our homework in a, a small rural community in western Pennsylvania. We knew that the company was planning two very large compressor stations. We had the documents. We knew that they were planning two, and they had two separate names. Um, we went to the local Board of Supervisors meeting. The company stood up. And
And this has been going on for a couple months, um, but they were trying to say, no, no, it's one compressor with two different names. We flipped the names because whatever reason they gave, but no, no, it was just one compressor station and it has two different names. Um, the public and the board had believed them um, up until we arrived in May of last year. And I asked the question again, letting them know that I had already checked with the state agency and had confirmed that it was actually two. And the company, we have it on tape, the company actually said, they hesitated for a moment and said, you're right, it's two. Now, if, and there were audible gasps in the audience because they had been saying for some period of time it was one with two different names and they were asking the board to make a decision on one but we knew that it was two so that's a very good example of if you have the information you can actually get the company to clarify and what it did at that point was it presented to this community that really is very pro-drilling, we came in and said, look, regardless of whether what your stance is on the drilling, they're not being fully transparent with you. Why? So it, it we actually got some of the folks who were leaseholders to actually stand up and say, you know what, they're asking good questions. What is the answer to that? So that's a, a real world example of if you have your homework and if you can challenge them with their own information, it very quickly levels the playing field and it takes it from rhetoric to actuality. And that's what has to happen time and time again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's powerful. It's incredibly discrediting to, to mm -hmm. show these discrepancies. It's like, you know, hey, they're not being honest with you. And, that's uh, right. That and would be very disconcerting. It is. And then the next time when we go back and we say, okay, now remember that happened before. So now we ask you to double check dot every I twice and cross every T twice because we didn't get all the facts the last time and we don't want to go through that again. Like we don't accuse anybody of anything. We never do that. But we use the facts to point out, as you said, really the very um, disingenuous nature of what they were trying to tell that community we very quickly took the wind right out of that argument and said, no, the state has already said this. What, what do you say to that? And then they did have to confirm we were correct. So it, in, in our situation, it very quickly provided more transparency that I believe in my heart would have been withheld from them for I don't know how much longer. Um, and then I think it also showed the other residents that we were being fair. We were not coming in to say anti this or pro that. We were coming in to say everybody deserves all the facts and they're withholding them from you. So that's a very powerful thing. And I think what's happened over the course of time, Ryan, is the more we do that as teams, the more we do that as an organization, EIP does that as an organization, industry starts to know where our teams are actively participating in the dialogue, we are going to require facts. We are going to use your facts. We're going to use your data. And as a company, it would behoove you to come in there prepared and fully transparent because we are the fact checkers and we will continue to teach people to do the same. So does that ever make you nervous, though, that they are just going to show up more prepared, that they're going to refine their process and just get better at it? And then you'll spend a lot of time scrutinizing, but you won't find any problems? Um, 
You know, I, maybe I'm just overly optimistic. I'm just an optimistic person by nature, but I, I have to say that in all the years I've been doing this, I have not found one permit application that I didn't find a question or a discrepancy on. I think, um, you know, it could happen. I'm sure, you know, there, you know, maybe someday everybody will get it right. And if that's the case, I'll count that as a win that maybe we forced industry and regulators and lawmakers to actually do a thorough and thoughtful review of the entirety of a project. I think that could be good. I think for now in the state of Pennsylvania, unfortunately, we have a state agency that's in charge of these permits that has been gutted um, in at least three, maybe more budget state budgets to the point where their outgoing um, secretary who was in charge of the whole agency said that they were a, an agency that had been crippled by job cuts and they don't have the key personnel they need. So in a situation like we find ourselves in Pennsylvania, it's all the more important that we look at the applications, we look at the documents, we raise serious questions and concerns and point out the missing pieces or the irregular pieces because the state is unable to do that. So we consider ourselves um, a support mechanism for widening out the eyes and ears that are looking at things. So I think industry can, you know, do obviously do a better job of providing more transparent information that I'll count as a win, but we're not there yet. So I think there's a lot of work yet to be done. Well, it also says something about their business model because clearly cutting corners is a way to increase their profit margin. And so you're actually driving up the costs for them by scrutinizing these permits. I mean, if they're comfortable just sliding things by that are, you know, have all these problems, have all these holes in them, then what does that mm -hmm. say about the drilling itself or the mining or anything else that they're proposing? So that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I don't know if, I mean, we're not, certainly we're not doing this to drive up the cost. That's not why we're doing it. We're doing it because right is right and wrong is wrong. And if a, an agency, whether it be state or federal, county or local, requires certain things, then that's my role, is to make sure that they've hit all those marks. Um, and industry, um, I've been in the room when the state has presented, and they've said that you know, they were ill-prepared. There was just an article in Politico last week that Ed Rendell, one of the former governors, the governor who allowed oil and gas drilling into Pennsylvania, admitted um, to Politico that he had made mistakes early on, that he had listened to industry. And, and, you know, he's half right about that. He did listen to industry, but we were telling him where they were making mistakes and he was not listening to the public. That's the difference. Um, we had conversations with the DEP, not just DIP, but lots of citizens, lots of organizations, you know, tried to get word to um, then secretary of DEP, Kathleen McGinty and Ed Rendell that no, stop, you're allowing way too much to happen way too quickly. Neither listened. Um, now Ed Rendell is admitting that there were problems. Um, so now we're in a situation where, um, we're having to go back and say, how do we prevent these moving forward? Unfortunately, there's a lot of damage, in my opinion, that's been done. Some of it may be irreparable. 
But I think what happened was we had a perfect storm of sorts. Um, it's my opinion. We had a governor and a secretary of the DEP that listened mostly to industry, um, took them at their word, didn't think any of these things could possibly happen. Um, the citizens really didn't know. They were approached. They were promised lots of money and jobs. And of course, who wouldn't want money and jobs? Um, it was a, you know, a lot of the communities that were initially approached were the ones who were struggling because they lost their industry from decades ago. Um, and then we had a situation where um, lots and lots of permitting was being, quote, streamlined, and there weren't enough fact checkers. You know, it was like, well, let's just get these things rolling so we can get those jobs and that money. Um, so I think that we're at important crossroads right now. We have a governor who allowed it to happen, who's now admitted that it happened. And now we have to go back and say, how do we learn from history? How do we learn from those mistakes? And that's the role that I'd like to think our citizen teams are playing is to say, look, we know what happened. And some of them live in those communities. They know what happened. They know what happened to people they are familiar with or they're related to. Um, so we need to just stop and go back and find a better way. We're not there yet. Uh, but I think that we have a lot of factual evidence, whether it's company data, admissions from people like Ed Rendell and others that say mistakes were made. Um, I think we have to be smart and work together. And that's what we're trying to do. It's, it's an uphill battle. Um, but I think the more that we do, the more facts we have on the table, the more um, information that can be shared and training that can be shared, it helps all of us. Um, so that I'm, I'm proud to be a part of that, that effort. So what I want to know now is what gives you the strength to keep going, um, seeing what, what you've seen. I mean, having having so many negative impacts of industry, you know, irreversible damage to the land and irreversible damage to public health, and um, and then also having to having to it's a lot of work to scrutinize these things. It's a lot of work to to teach yeah. people about it, and. Um, and then even just like that story that you told about standing up to speak and then being shouted at and then, you know, what gives you that, that strength? Because I know it's not easy. Uh, what gives you mm -hmm. that strength to be able to really take control back and really look right in the eyes of, of those people and, and take control of that story? Well, I, I always... I always say to the people that I, that I work with in the community, first of all, I guess the, the easy answer is I'm stubborn and I'm Irish and I am the proverbial lioness protecting everyone's cups. So those three things together are kind of the crux of my personality. But more than that, with each effort that we undertake, with each permit, that, permit application we review, with each story that we hear, we know we're on the right track. We know that the facts are the great leveler, and that's what keeps me going. I just know that if all of the pieces are put on the table and everyone has an opportunity to view it with their eyes wide open, with the entire footprint on the table, I am confident that decisions will be made on a factual basis as opposed to a we're intimidated or we don't think we have authority or it's because industry, you know, we're afraid that industry will, you know, come after us. I want to dispel all of that. And I want everybody to refocus on what are the facts? The facts 
really matter to you. Clearly, the industry takes a different approach. They use story and message and marketing and, and framing. So that must just drive you crazy, right? <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I have, I have found that they try to do that initially. It, it, it's been my experience that the companies seem to have that mode of behavior. They go in and they try to control the messaging. They cherry pick the information. They try to say, you know, this is fine. We want to be a good neighbor. That If I hear that phrase, you know, five times a week, I must hear 50. They, they want to be a good neighbor. They, you know, they come in and they try the PR tact, which is fine. That's great. Um, you know, some people find that interesting. Some people find that enough for them. It's not enough for me. And I try to tell people, don't just take it at face value. You have to scratch beneath the surface. So I think they always will try to do that. It's been my experience that I've seen them do that. But as I said, you know, during the inter interview portion, we're trying to break that pattern of behavior. We're trying to, you know, when we're in a community, we have set a certain level of expectation that, you know, don't bring your puff pieces in here, bring your facts in here because we're going to be bringing them and we're going to ask you specific questions. So to me, yes, it's frustrating. It's maddening when I see it happen, but for the communities that I've been working in, I find it happens less often because we've set this pattern of expectation. And that's what I think can be the, that's what I think can be a, a help to a lot of the other communities moving forward. If you start that right from the beginning, you might have a chance of nipping that sort of PR approach in the bud earlier. Um, so that's what drives me. And, and I'll tell you, this is another story that I share with all of the communities I work in, and I share it with the state as well. My dad was a school architect here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania for over 50 years. He was um, one of the best school architects the state had. He would have never gone into a community and said, I'm going to build you a school, but I'm only going to tell you where the driveway is this year, but I want all my permits. I want my permit to construct the whole thing. And then next year, I'll tell you where the ball fields will be. The following year, I'll tell you where the school building will be. And then after that, we'll add the swimming pool in the administration building. But I want my permit today for all of it. Now, he, first of all, would never have asked for that, nor would anyone have granted that, including the State Department of Education. <clears throat> but in essence, that's what the oil and gas industry, in my opinion, is asking these local communities to do. We want to come in and we want to build this entire industrial web of activity that includes well pads, gathering lines, pipelines, compressor stations, cryogenic plants, and pigging operations. But we're not going to give you the whole footprint. We only want to do one, I call it egg slicer permitting. We only want to do it one permit at a time. So we want to start with the well pad and we're going to get our permission for that. And then we'll tell you the next piece and the next piece. Now, the problem with that, in my opinion, is they would never approve a school, a mall, a golf course, anything else with that kind of egg slice or permitting. So why is the state of Pennsylvania and the, all the decision makers allowing that to happen? I, that's a question that I, I keep asking. Why is there a double standard? But more importantly, I fear that the oil and gas industry is going into these communities and getting enough of a toehold 
building enough of their infrastructure that they're so far along in that process that they're never going to be told no. I want to flip that around. I want to push to have full disclosure of the entire footprint of the entire industrial web of activity before any local permits are granted, because I think the community has a right to know what's coming, not just the poking the hole in the ground, as people have said to me for the, for the drilling, not just the well pad, but what comes next. I don't think it's fair that industry is allowed to do it in a piecemeal fashion and then get it so far built that there is no stopping them. I want to change that. That's my mission is to make sure that things get reviewed in their entirety, not in one little piece at a time. Mm-hmm. And so what are you working on right now that people can get involved with? So we are actually working on a citizen's toolkit, um, taking a lot of what we talked about today, and we're putting it into user-friendly fact sheets, how-to glossary infographics where they apply, so that we can teach more people um, inside Pennsylvania. These are all geared primarily to Pennsylvania because that's where I am. But I think there are probably sister pieces to some of these things or you know, sister uh, rules and regulations to some of these things in other states. But we want to teach and educate as many people as possible to go over this with a fine-tooth comb with act for accuracy, for transparency, for the whole industrial application, not just pieces. I think that that is something that will help. Um, you know, it's going to take a while to get there, but I think um, we're going to have that available in mid to late September. Uh, we are going to have those resources available that I'm going to be taking to the community, but also we'll have it on our website probably in October. Um, so folks who visit the environmentalintegrity.org website, there will be, um, you know, a, a tab or some notification where that citizen's toolkit will be. Um, and then, of course, we, you know, have um, meetings that we do. We do webinars and different things like that. If there are folks, um, I'm working with a team of people from some of our partner organizations. We want to teach a lot of people how to do the research, how to approach a school district, how to approach a local board, how to get citizens involved. So EIP, along with our partner groups, um, are, are hoping to provide these training tools far and wide. So if you're listening and you're stubborn like Lisa and you want to scrutinize and really follow what's happening, um, you can find out more and get involved. Do you have a, Lisa, do you have a, an email list or someplace on your website where people can kind of plug in and hear about this when it, when it gets released? Uh, we're going to be putting everything out on social media. So if you want to like us on Facebook or you want to follow us on Twitter, um, if you do look, it's EIP. Um, I can provide those to you, Ryan, um, all of the, the um, pages, but this is going to be pushed pretty heavily on social media. So it'd be great if you want to like us and follow us on Twitter. We'd love to have you um, because we'll keep you updated, not only as the release date arrives, but also we're going to be doing updates to these tools. So yeah, please visit, look for us on all the social media networks because we're going to be sharing far and wide. And um, that's uh, at environmentalintegrity.org. And, um, and also, uh, you know, what are some ways that people can support you? I mean, you, I mean, it's just from, from talking to you, I can tell you have a lot of strength already. So you're not like, uh, 
you know, seems like like you're a powerhouse, really, against the, you know working on these Thanks. issues. Um, but but I'm sure that that you could still use some some support every now and then. And so, mm-hmm. what would that look like? So um, EIP is a nonprofit, and uh, if there are, you know, we have foundations that donate to us and philanthropic organizations, which we love. We also take individual donations if folks um, like what we're doing and want to see us do more of that. There's always that. Um, If you, you know, follow us on, uh, as I said, Facebook and and Twitter, um, if you let us know or you on our website, we have a way that you can respond to us let us know. I will get the information back. It goes to our communications team and they let me know if there's an, a specific inquiry. But, you know, reach out to us, share stories. If you've had success stories, if you have challenges that you've overcome, um, we'd like to know about that. We'd like to share that with others. If you have specific questions that aren't addressed in the citizen handbook or citizen toolkit, then please reach out to us. We'll try to get you. If we don't have someone on the ground in your area, we'll check with some of our partner groups to see if there are others that uh, might have some resources for you as well. But I think let's all work together. Let's all keep talking and really take that education and pay it forward. Mm -hmm. And don't be intimidated by the industry um, message. Absolutely. Have their own information, and that's the best way to level the playing field pretty quickly. Thanks, Lisa, so much for talking with me today and um, and with Thank everybody. You. Yeah. Thank you so much. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have an awesome day. You too, and have a good weekend. Thanks. Bye. Mm-hmm. Bye. All right, well, that wraps up my conversation with Lisa Graves Marcusi. Thanks for listening to Halt the Harm podcast. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And uh, depending on how you're listening, you're going to see show notes attached to the episode with links to all the stuff we talked about, including the Citizens Toolkit that Lisa mentioned. You can also go to ecodefenseradio.org to see the episode show notes and photos. Um, Big thanks to everyone who's subscribed so far. This podcast is really getting momentum, which is amazing. We're just getting started, but with each episode released, there's more and more downloads. So if you're listening right now, I just want to say thanks. I'm so happy that we're able to share these interviews with you. And uh, if you have feedback for the show or anything like that, uh, please reach out to us. This podcast is a project of HaltTheHarm.net, a powerful resource for anyone confronting the fracking industry. Halt the Harm is a network of leaders who are taking action, sharing resources and information, and supporting each other's campaigns. Find out more at HaltTheHarm.net.